I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Miriam Gerba. She is a writer and artist and the author of the true crime memoir, Mean, a New York Times editor's choice. Oh, the Oprah magazine ranked Mean as one of the best LGBTQ books of all time. She lives in Long Beach, California, and her new essay collection is called Creep, Accusations and Confessions. Miriam, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to talk with you. Me too. Um, I, I was I was just mentioning to you that last we talked, I had interviewed you for Out Magazine when when Mean was published, and um, <laughs> a lot has been on since then. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about just how your writing has changed since then, because Mean was so experimental, and there are great vignettes. And then Creep feels a little bit more solid. (laughs) So Mean was an intentionally experimental attempt at narrating several experiences that I had enduring and surviving sexual violence. When I wrote Mean, I really wanted to attack certain storytelling habits that had developed around um, feminine narrations of, um, uh, or feminine narratives of sexual violence. Uh, Creep differs in that that concern with sexual violence is still present, and it is the through line that connects the various essays But I had um, less interest in approaching the structure of creep in such an experimental way. There are areas in which I do experiment, and then there are areas in which I 
I follow much more um, traditional conventions. Yeah. And and I do feel like the tone is very similar between the two yes. books. Um, and, and we'll talk about humor in a second. First, first I have to say that um, I reread my blurb for mean and, and I used the word catharsis. And on the second to last page of Creep, you write that, I, I'm paraphrasing, making art isn't intrinsically cathartic. It can be a protective cocoon. Yes. And you totally changed the way that I look at how, how you wrote Mean. Uh, tell, me, tell me about just, I hope this isn't like, this isn't a spoiler because <laughs> but I don't think that there are any spoilers. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't. I don't think that this is a spoiler. Um, you want me to discuss like the process of of writing mean and and that sentiment I, of, of what you were going through while you were writing mean? Sure. So, um, mean took me several years to write. It's difficult for me to determine how many years because it's difficult for me to determine what the actual starting point was. Like I said, it began as a series of experiments, and I didn't intend for those experiments to be published. I intended for them to remain these private experiments that were for the sake of, of bettering myself as a writer. Um, when Mean did publish, um, I had uh, a lot of difficulty doing press for it because I had escaped from domestic violence, and I was a bit timid when I was doing the press and I was very guarded about some of the statements that I made when I was doing press. And one of the questions that I was often asked, and sometimes it wasn't necessarily even presented as a question. It was presented more as a comment with the suggestion that it might be a question. And, uh, and that comment was, gee, it must've been incredibly cathartic for you to have uh, written a memoir in which you confront sexual violence that occurred when you were uh, an adolescent and in your late teens. And uh, writing mean and detailing those experiences was not cathartic at all. I was surviving gender-based violence while writing about gender-based violence. And so instead of that manuscript or the process of 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 creating that manuscript being a, a, a somehow like a cathartic process instead it was a life-saving process because the manuscript gave me a place to hide from my abuser it was one of the few places he couldn't enter into he couldn't chase me into the manuscript uh, and chase me through the manuscript he could not abuse me through the manuscript and so it was a haven, but it wasn't a location of catharsis. And so what I want for people to understand is that unless a reader or a critic or an audience understands the specific conditions under which a person is creating a work of art, in particular, a female artist, don't assume that its creation was cathartic because we don't know what that person is surviving in the moment. Absolutely. And that is, this entire book is a very good reminder of that. But <laughs> um, Miriam, I, I don't often like to ask about book design. 
but the, the cover image and, and title are so striking. Partly in that, like, the word creep is above your beautiful face with your grandmother's oh. eyes. Um, <laughs> and creep means so many different things in this book. But on the cover, it, it really implicates you, too. <laughs> Tell me about that. And, and we had conversations about that word appearing uh, in or around my face and how and how I would become an implicated subject as a result of that proximity. And I'm glad to become an implicated subject through that proximity because part of the book's project is to implicate everybody. Um, and to both um, diagram in overt ways, but also suggest how it is that we all come to function as creeps, especially um, through systemic channels. If we are in some way connected to a creepy institution, then we're going to be coerced into doing its dirty work at some point in time. And so the book is an invitation for all of us to engage in personal inventory and to engage in accountability. That said, I am enamored of titles that are monosyllabic and crisp. That's why I like the title mean. That's why I like the title creep. I really like these rich sort of consonant clusters because uh, it, it's really enjoyable to have them all together in your mouth. Um, and, and creep is one of those words that's, that's incredibly multifaceted. Um, uh, for some of us, it, 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 it is like firmly entrenched in our imagination as a noun for others. It's firmly entrenched in our imagination as a verb for some of us, it, it toggles back and forth as both. And so I, I'm really inviting again, readers to, to look at the dynamism of language through a word, through a simple word like creep. Absolutely. And Another visceral word that you have, um, and, and, and I think we are almost exactly the same age, so slime. Yes. Slime, <laughs> you, you, you mentioned in the context of there was this show called You Can't Do That on Television, and it was a big practical joke that if someone said, I don't know, a big bucket of slime would pour on them. Exactly. And, um, and quite a metaphor there for right? vigilance. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think that essay so beautifully captures the idea of humor being both something that you we really need desperately, yeah. and then also a great excuse for um, someone to do something terrible and say it was just a joke. Exactly. Tell me about that. Exactly. So, so Slimed is an essay about the seriousness of humor. And, and essays about humor or analyses of humor are notoriously unfunny. And so I open the essay by disabusing the reader of any notion that they're going to be sliding into a humorous essay. They, they, <laughs> they, like, this is this is an analytical essay. This is an autopsy of a clown, so to speak. That's that's how I how I enter into um enter into that that analysis and. That essay was inspired by several dilemmas. One uh, was, was as follows. I have had um, some critics and reviewers express that they are very bothered by the intersection of humor and horror 
that appears in my writing, especially uh, my writing about sexual violence that is shot through with comedy. So that has made some folks incredibly uncomfortable. And so I wanted to explore what the origins of that discomfort are. So I wanted to go directly to that crosswords, crossroads, crossword, <laughs> crossroads. I wanted to invite, you know, uh, people to go to that crossroads with me and to think through that problem. Um, and what I also wanted to do was uh, invite readers to consider another problem, which is this. So often when misogynists engage in humor and make misogynist jokes, there's this knee-jerk reaction to say, what he just said is not a joke because I don't find it funny. And so we're going to recategorize misogynist humor and we're going to rebrand it as other. And I think that that's a mistake. I think that what's, what is funny to a mis misogynist is not going to be funny to a feminist or a womanist, but that doesn't make it, uh, that doesn't uh, exclude it from the category of humor. And what I argue in the essay is that Humor isn't necessarily a phenomena that we can evaluate according to whether or not it elicits laughter. What it does is it restructures social space. And so if somebody's joke has achieved that, then that person has engaged in humor. And we really, really ought to pay attention to how it is that misogynists are attempting to restructure social space through language because what ensues then is a material restructuring of social space that, again, is going to fuck women. <laughs> so like, can I talk like that? Is it? Is please, it okay? please. Okay. Um, and, and, and speaking of that, um, I, I love your invocation of Chantal V. Johnson's post-traumatic, which I think is such a masterful intersection of, of those two things in fiction. Yes. Like that novel is one of the few novels come up that goes hard that goes really 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 hard when it comes to how incredibly grotesque uh various forms of abuse are in particular child sexual abuse but that also invokes the the sovereignty of the victim and 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 the victim's sovereignty when it comes to her humor and her comedy and her use of medicine when it comes to when it comes to healing Absolutely. The fact that more survivor stories don't have humor is, is sometimes shocking to me. Yes, absolutely. It's, 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 um, to me, I see, uh, the absence of it as part of, uh, you know, we all develop our habits and storytellers develop habits too. And so I do think that there is habit that exists uh, current United States, where when um, uh, a survivor is invited to to disclose uh, a story of um, having survived sexual assault, we're almost to, we're expected to narrate almost according to like these reverential and sacral tones. Um, the class clown isn't supposed to share her story of sexual violence. You know what I mean? Sure. And so, <laughs> and so I'm I'm inviting sort of class clowns to share that. <laughs> I love that. Miriam, tell me a little bit about your California, specifically Santa Maria, um, because there are so many things that you touch on in, in Creep that really uh, affect the way you see the world. I 
love California. I'm a person who's incredibly devoted to place and I fall in love with places. And to me, some places become synonymous and interchangeable character. And for me, California and more specifically Los Angeles is one of those places. They're, they're those places. They're places that I think of um, as having spirit um, and as having such an incredible amount of character that they may as well be humans. Um, and the California that I was born into was a semi-rural California. I'm from Santa Maria, which is um, a town that I jokingly refer to as Fresno by the sea. <laughs> it's um, it's a smallish town. Um, it is known for its splendid tri-tip barbecue, um, it's strawberry harvest, strawberry festival, strawberry queen. And, uh, lastly, as having been the site of the Michael Jackson trial. So that, <laughs> that and all town that made me. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, when you speak about the West, you also mentioned throughout the book, the, the idea of the manifest destiny and the idea of pioneering and how it just feels so wrong to have a conversation about California without getting into those topics. And yet. <laughs> yeah. So, so the book, um, because the book is largely set in California, California becomes one of the various characters and California is both muse and creep in a sense, because California is a place uh, where, where creeps convene uh, in, in some of these essays. And I, the, the, the creep uh, who I saw primarily in terms of her relationship to uh, this pioneer um, and, and who really had sort of an ascendance in terms of of uh, nearly owning the California canon is Joan Didion. And, and, and through my essay on Didion, I don't seek to quote unquote cancel her because at the start of the essay, I do give her her flowers. I say that, you know, I write that she was my first exposure to a style of writing that we might call California cool or California bitch, right? She, <laughs> she first exposed me to that. But then as I delved more and more into her work, I was troubled by specific kinds of racism that I saw threaded through it. And it wasn't simply threaded to the, through the fiction. It's threaded through all of her work from start to finish. And I find it really disappointing that in her later years, when she really did have an opportunity to delve into that legacy and explore it, it seems that she went right to the edge of the cliff in her collection um, where I'm where I was from. It seems that she goes right to the edge of the abyss. She peers into it. She gets frightened and then runs away. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I feel as if <laughs> I'm standing there with her at the edge of the cliff and 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 talking her through, you know, what it is she couldn't confront on her own. Absolutely. Miriam, I am really glad that your piece on American Dirt made it into this collection. I wasn't sure if we would see it or not. And it mm -hmm. really, um, given the context, fits, fits even more wonderfully. I'm wondering if you could tell me about the decision to include sure. your 
Yeah. What criticism so, that made you sort of famous. <laughs> yeah. So there was a little bit of hesitation about including that essay uh, because it's an essay that I, at times can eclipse um, other work that I've done. However, I do think that that it it works so well with the theme of creep and I, I do stress that creep is a gender neutral category, just like <laughs> dude, right? <laughs> and so, yes, the book, uh, the book takes aim quite a bit at male supremacy, but there are these various sort of um, female and I think even non-binary creeps who sort of lurk and loom in in the in the book and and I treat Joan Didion as one of them. And, and I also suggest through that essay that 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 I'm uh, that critiqued American Dirt, that its author is also among among those female literary creeps. <laughs> I love it. And I just love I love that you so much of this of this uh, essay collection um, is autobiographical. But you do, you talk about books in a way that um, is so exciting to me. Uh, I, I'm wondering, I, I, I saw that you were referencing The Lovely Bones, and I kind of went back and thought, uh-oh, we know what happened um, with Alice Sabold and, and Lucky and her accusation of, of a yeah. man. And, Tell me, tell me about writing about, about that kind of stuff. So I mentioned earlier that there are storytelling habits that seem to have developed um, that relate to particular subject matter. So I think that there's an expectation um, placed on survivors to uh, narrate stories of survival in a very, very particular way. Mm -hmm. And it's a way that uh, I'm not interested and sharing my story or narrating uh, the stories of others. Um, and Siebold's Lucky was one of the first um, uh, memoirs of its kind that I read, where um, a woman in her teens is reflecting on uh, a stranger assault and then um, chronicles her experiences with the criminal legal system from identification to prosecution. And I remember when I read that book, on the one hand, I was excited to have a book of that nature in my hands because I thought to myself, this is something that I have experienced and I'm so struck by woman's ability to have translated her experiences into memoir. However, um, I, I was really bothered what seemed to be, to be uh, I'm trying to choose my words carefully here, what seemed to be really troubling race politics in, 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 in Lucky. Um, and so when I did begin experimenting um, with writing about my own experiences of sexual violence, I intentionally was writing against what I encountered in Lucky. Um, and one of the thoughts I recall having as I was reading Lucky 
was um, a thought regarding uh, Siebold's eyewitness identification of her perpetrator. I remember thinking she had difficulty with that. She ID'd the wrong person. And in spite of having ID'd the wrong person, she still felt so confident in her ability to send the correct to send the correct person to prison that she proceeded uh, with the trial and um, repeats throughout the memoir what an ideal survivor she is and what an ideal victim she is. And that chafed me as well because all of these characteristics that she lists as characteristics that made her ideal are characteristics uh, uh, that I don't have. In fact, um, I am the opposite or I was the opposite um, in the sense that, you know, I was, I was, you know, she, she describes how she was not dressed provocatively when she was attacked. I could have been described as having been dressed very provocatively. She describes being white. She describes um, the amount of force that was used. She describes that she goes to a private school and, uh, and so, so yeah, it really chafed and, and it made me feel as a reader, as if she was constructing some sort of pyramid, right. Of survivors and situating some closer to the top and others closer at the bottom. And so it was very troubling to me to read that. And I wanted to write against that. Um, same with lovely bones. It felt like lovely bones continued, uh, with the same beats and, and I was utterly disinterested, <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And so, and I love the, the intersection where the literary and the the creepiness really uh, intersect and uh, cause chaos. And the essay in which you talk about William Burroughs, you talk yes. about death games, and death games are just like practical jokes, right? Like they yes. they um, are supposed to be kind of fun and funny until sometimes they're really, really not. Uh, <laughs> until someone actually dies. All fucking games until somebody actually dies, yeah. <laughs> but I think about, like, the, the story that I always heard about Burroughs. Oh, he was trying to shoot an apple off of his wife's head. Like, yes, of course, that's a logical explanation to do anything. Of course, don't all men do that when they're showing off in front of their friends? Thank you for giving her a, a bunch of, of space back in my brain. Yes. It's nothing else. It's like what I wanted to do with Tell was to tell Volmer's story because typically she becomes a footnote, right? In the same way that Nicole Brown becomes a footnote in, in the story of O.J. Simpson, Volmer typically becomes this footnote in the story of this great American junkie writer. And so what I wanted to, 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 to illustrate was uh, she is no footnote. And I do think that for a lot of folks, the crux of the bros legend is Vollmer's femicide. That that is what attracts so many readers to Burroughs is that he murdered a woman and got away with it. And I do think that there are misogynists who believe that that's Burroughs' magic. And so in a sense, it's vampiric magic, right? He took the life force from this woman and then 
that life force gave him the career that he he enjoyed. But that's that's the heart of the legend, I think. The heart of Burroughs' legend is femicide. And I do think of it as a domestic violence murder because she was his common-law wife. And all of the red flags that indicate that a femicide is going to happen were present in that marriage. She had wanted a divorce. And it's when a perpetrator feels that he's losing control of a captive that he lashes out and he escalates violence. So within weeks of her announcement that she wanted a divorce, oh my goodness, she's dead. What a coincidence. So I, I am inviting people to look at all those pieces very differently and to think of Vollmer in the context of domestic violence and to think of her death in the context of femicide. And Mexico is often associated with femicide because it's been described as having reached epidemic proportions in Mexico. But I'm asking people to consider this iconic femicide that was not perpetrated by a Mexican. This was perpetrated against a white woman by a white man, and it became an American legend. And she's still in Mexico, as you say. And she's still in Mexico. That's where she remained. And to me, that's so incredibly offensive because he took control of her remains and he chose her final resting place. She did not. And I didn't even get to talk to you about Lorena Bobbitt, but so we'll we'll save some uh, excitement for the readers. <laughs> Before we go, though, will you please recommend some books for us? Yes, I can absolutely recommend some other books. So um, right now on my nightstand, I have one book that I have begun. It's called The Other Slavery. And it is about the enslavement of indigenous people in the Americas. Um, and uh, and it, it, it is sort of a chronological survey of, um, of various forms of enslavement that were uh, in particular perpetrated by, by the Spanish and uh, the Portuguese. So I'm reading that and then in my to-read pile is um, Almanac of the Dead by Leslie Marmon Silco. I have a friend who um, gave me that book. In fact, the friend who gave me the book was uh, was William Burroughs' boyfriend. <laughs> it was William Burroughs' final boyfriend. Yeah, so he he gave me a copy of of um, Almanac of the Dead, and I I plan on reading that soon. Yeah. Oh, I love that you bring it all back. <laughs> Right. Um, <laughs> Miriam, thank you so much. The book is Creep and you really need to read it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.